I dream in color and I sleep on a canvas. I think we all need each other. Empathy that could be our advantage. Bad bitch speak Creole and Spanish. She looked this way, then I'm liking my chances. Oh man, why I go on these tangents? Bird's eye view, this shit panoramic. Still firing off my paranoia. Shit too real, just fire my lawyer. Trust issues, I'm needing to fix it. That can be an empire destroyer. You seen what happened to Julius Caesar. Stevie Wonder told me you were a leader. My girl had forfeit a tennis match to meet my grandmama. Man, she truly a keeper. Huh, and I don't know why the blessings coming. Rich as hell, won't stress over nothing. I don't listen to the public opinion. Their portrayal, it is just an assumption. And I don't really know what a nigga been fighting for, but I'm fighting for it. And every song that I preach, God be saving. Yo, yo, welcome to Uncultured Bias. I'm your host, Kamara Williams. Uh, that actually was a track from Corday, uh, actually formerly known as YBM Corday, a good young artist. Actually, I wanted to play that song because. In truth, I actually was going to do another podcast, uh, and then, as what happens, life takes over, and uh, a certain situation cropped up in uh, sports regarding his uh, beau at the time, his current girlfriend, uh, Naomi Osaka. She's a four-time Grand Slam singles champion, Um, and what that issue is that on, I think, this Wednesday, or by the time you guys hear the show, it'll be almost a week later, uh, she announced that she will not be doing any press or interviews during a news conference during the French Open, which has happened, um, started this past weekend, by the time you hear it. Of course, Naomi Osaka is a successful uh, athlete, uh, one of the best athletes in the world, uh, men or women. And, uh, of course, she's young. She's 23 years old, uh, one of the biggest stars on the planet. And I think before then, she was uh, she broke the record of one of being the highest the highest-earning female athlete. In one year, uh, she earned over like $55 million in one year, um, which is astounding. Um, and so, you know, one of the things I was fascinated about her is just her rise in just culture. And obviously, um, with her saying that she's not going to be uh, giving interviews, it just started this whole uh, issue of accessibility. And then the conversation became became about, um, well, she's doing this for her mental health reasons, right? Be saying that, you know, she's, uh, had to, it comes under a lot of stress for her and um, it's kicking a person when she's down and especially after a loss and it's the emotional engagement and it talks about balancing the thoughts of sports and humanity. And I always thought that was a fascinating concept, right? Because oftentimes we look at athletes, at these pillars in our society and we strip away their humanity from them. And when an athlete tries to remind you of their humanity, we're uh, left shocked, right? And I think that's really interesting because I, again, I acknowledging that I actually did not intend on going this direction on this pod. I was actually going to talk about uh, Tiger Woods, and obviously, there's a natural inclination to involve, um, you know, his lineage as far as sports lineage, and I think uh, Naomi. She's interesting candidate because not only is she widely popular, she's young, she's biracial, same biracial descent of Tiger being um, both Asian and black. And, you know, her foothold on this generation is almost similar to what I would see was happening with uh, Tiger Woods. And I wonder about the level of humanity we're gonna, or grace that we're going to be giving her. So we'll talk about all of that. Um, I'm, I'm going to bring on some guests. We'll transition into this conversation to just talk about sports and whatnot. But before then, I just want to thank everybody for tuning into 
this podcast. Um, if you are a subscriber, uh, thank you. If you haven't subscribed, please do so. Uh, if you're on Apple, please leave a five-star review. It helps with the algorithms, of course. And, you know, obviously, um, you know, check out the website, KamaraWilliams.com. That's where we have our open engagement. People kind of give their suggestions and what they like or do not like about the podcast and leave commentary on our page. Also, um, if you are a fan of the podcast, I just ask that you guys continue to share it with your friends, whether on social media or on text and, uh, you know, or even just send me an inbox message. People tend to do that as well. But I, honestly, I, we always say that sharing is caring, but engagement is more important. So when you engage with people and tell them, hey, I love this podcast, it drives so much more of the content. Um, so I want to thank everybody who's tuning in. Thank our sponsors. Uh, you know, uh, obviously, we're going to thank uh, the <laughs> Compass Tax Advisors. Uh, they're located in Tallahassee, but you can reach them at mycompasstax.com at 850-273-7193. And you could also check out my mother's real estate company, Keystone Global Real Estate. Uh, you reach them at keystoneglobalrealestate.com at 407-680-8510. And, of course, Smith & Williams Trial Group uh, for your estate planning needs and probate. Um, you can reach us at 888-798-4529. That's 888-SWTG-LAW. Or you can reach me at cwilliams at swtglaw.com. All right. Fantastic. So with that being said, we've got a lot of the housekeeping. And we're going to go ahead and, again, bring in some guests and talk about the sports and humanity and all that stuff. Gentlemen, you still with me? Yeah, man. I'm here. All right. Yes, sir. All right. Right now, I have... My good friends, um, I have Bruce Mount and Nate or Nathaniel. How do you want me to say Nathaniel or Nate? You can call me Nate. That's cool. All right. <laughs> I got Nate Lester. Um, so uh, just uh, Bruce Mount Jr., he's a local attorney in Central Florida, and he practices primarily in uh, civil litigation and auto accidents and, you know, injury. I guess injury, auto accident injury law or... Any right employment law, employment law. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Um, and Nate, he is a man of many interests, but he's primarily, uh, works in real estate. Uh, give a shout out to your real estate company. Nate. Yeah. Um, good evening, everybody. Uh, morning, wherever you guys are. (laughs) Uh, I'm a realtor with uh, preferred real estate brokers here in Orlando, Florida. Um, but I am available to uh, help out, um, in all of Central Florida. So um, if you need any assistance with uh, buying, selling, or investing, uh, I have no problem uh, helping you out. And you can reach me at 786-877-2336 or follow me on IG at sold underscore by underscore Nathaniel. Yo, Nate. Yeah. Um, you also have to do something with like golf, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I also work for the golf, uh, for the golf channel a company called Golf Now. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, there I am in charge of um, working on the uh, product support uh, team um, that the um, golf courses use uh, to run their point of sale systems. Um, so uh, basically, we help them make money. Uh, throughout the day. Here's the, thing, here's the thing about Nate. Here's the thing about Nate. So all I do is I see Nate on the golf course and talk about he's working. So I don't know what if Nate what his real job is, but you know it's all good. 
And I feel like you Bruce, ain't got no job, Tommy. You ain't got no job, hey, Tommy. And Bruce, <laughs> first of all, hey, I'm, I'm, trying, I'm trying to get like y'all, man. Get these multiple streams of income, brother. Listen, I feel you, Bruce. I feel like you should. You need to give your your law firm a shout out since Nate was doing was doing promo. You need to do some promo as well. How can they reach you? Well, well, well like Kamara said, I'm an attorney at the Leach firm. Uh, where we practice uh, employment law, workers' compensation, uh, and personal injury. You can reach us at the office at 407-574-4999. And I can be reached at bmount, that's B-M-O-U-N-T, at theleechfirm.com. All right, there you go. So I admitted during the opening monologue that I, you know, I actually asked you guys several weeks ago, like, a, while, a couple months ago to do this pod, right? And then something happened. Something something wonderful happened in Bruce's life. You had a second child. I did. And I felt like, yeah. you know, my podcast was more important than you, you know, being for there for the birth of your child. But I understand, you know. I told my wife it didn't go over well. Yeah, you know, I mean, we'll have a talk with her because I, I felt <laughs> like priorities, man. It's, it's priorities, bro. <laughs> so... Um, but to, to Bruce's credit, actually, Bruce was a yeah, man of his word. He was actually going to try to uh, do the pod, and I was like, "No, nah, man, I'm not. We ain't going to do that." <laughs> like, For the sake of Bruce's family life, it was in his best interest not to do the pod. Yeah, you know what I mean. You know, uh, so but I shout out to him, and so um, and then I think we had, I think Nate, you hit me up a couple of weeks, ago, a week or so ago, no, two weeks ago. You said, "Hey, the the PGA Championship is." coming up and we should do the pod now and i was like oh yeah that'll be a good pod and I, we were going to talk about tiger woods right because it was really and that's what the in, the thought process was we we're going to talk about because the whole the whole tiger woods documentary came out and we, i'm going to talk about tiger woods and black his um impact on black culture and black america and um so that was going to be this whole pod and then something happened with naomi and i was like we're going to switch gears and I, and I did tell you guys right before you jumped on <laughs> Absolutely. So you guys have ample time to prepare, but yeah. in your in your um, ample time to prepare for this pod, um, what did you think about the whole Naomi Osaka thing? Just initial thoughts. I'll go and start with you, Bruce. Again, like you said, in true Kamara fashion, you know, we're able to, to give us. 30 second notice about uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, the topic. Um, but but I, I find it very interesting. Um, I think you mentioned her age uh, being 23 uh, and one making uh, so much money. I think she surpassed Serena Williams recently yeah. with being, uh, you know, the highest grossing female athlete. But I mean, when all that happens, life comes at you fast. I mean, I think we um, automatically put folks on a, a pedestal uh, and make uh, make it seem like, hey, just because this person may be a tremendous athlete, that we always have to be able to assess, you know, have access to them. And I, I think uh, her taking a stand, not only just for mental health, but she was very vocal during um, in support of the, the Black Lives Matter movement. So um, I think it's time for us now to, to, to take a stand and stand up for her uh, and, and making sure that she, you know, protects herself and her mental health. Absolutely. Yeah, and I, I want to talk about that as far as her um, involving herself in, you know, that particular uh, movement. But, Nate, what are your thoughts? Uh, well, my, I share the same sentiments as Bruce. You know, I mean, I think that, you know, as um, 
spectators, we definitely put athletes on a pedestal and we just think that they're machines, not human beings. And we expect them just to go in just to after a, a loss or a win, just go and speak in front of a whole bunch of cameras and people and uh, answer every single little question. And it's um, some of the stuff these people be asking, man, not only are the questions stupid, <laughs> but uh, they're also repetitive. Um, and I've found a lot of athletes and coaches, too, as well, especially after a loss, um, they're, them just getting super upset um, by a question that they answered 20 minutes ago or 10 minutes ago being asked again, maybe in a different way, but it's the same question. You know what I'm saying? So um, I think that, you know, they should be allowed the grace um, to be able to have the choice to make if they want to attend the press conference or not. I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, I don't think it's going to change that much more of an outcome. I think as human beings, if somebody loses, like, you know, they feel bad. Like, you don't have to ask them, well, how do you feel after the loss? And what are you going to do to change things around? And right. like, I don't, because <laughs> no matter what they say, I mean, it's it, it has to all translate to when it's game time, whether it's basketball, soccer, football, um, whatever. So you asking a bunch of questions right now, the difference. And on top of that, you know, like they're humans, you know, you after you after you lose a game, like you feel you don't you don't feel happy after a win. Of course, you're going to say, yeah, I feel great. The offense executed well. They did this. They did that. Blah, blah, blah. You know what I'm saying? So I just I don't know. I just feel like we've. um it's it's become a thing to have press conferences afterwards. Um, you know, I don't know if it's for a sponsorship perspective or whatever the case may be, but you know, I do agree that they should be able uh, and uh, be allowed to be able to have the grace to, um, if they don't want to participate in the press conference, they don't necessarily have to. You know, it's still a business, though, Nate. <laughs> exactly, dollars and cents. That's why it, it, it is still a business, and uh, you know, I, I want to. We'll, we'll address that, but one of the things I thought about, um, well, there was a, a comment by uh, Annalia Bailey, she's a USA Today uh, sports reporter, and she says that you know, it's time to accept, and I'll quote, that Naomi Osaka is a human being before she's an athlete, stepping away from things that do not serve as an essential practice for your well-being, regardless of how mandatory society makes them, makes those things is smart and not problematic. So I, that goes along with your thoughts, right, Nate? So, I mean, Bruce, can you imagine getting out of an emotional trial and then having to now dissect in front of scores of people, you know, your emotional thoughts and be, you know, as transparent as possible? Would that, that I mean, and always doing that every time, every case, that being your uh, responsibility. Could you do no, that? I, I I could imagine having to do that. I mean, I think good or bad, right? I mean, I think for me I, personally, I try not uh, to get too high or too low, right? And I think um, having to go through that process uh, in public uh, is probably it would trust me be detrimental to my mental health. I can tell you for sure, uh, especially after a hard fought battle, whether it's you know criminal trial or you're. Uh, representing someone who uh, could potentially spend the rest of their life in uh, in prison or trying to seek financial justice for a client after, uh, you know, they've been wronged. I, I could just imagine having to, uh, you know, share those most intimate thoughts and feelings in a camera every single time. So you mentioned, though, it's a business, right? So how do we balance Correct. that, right? Because it's, it's 
she is a she is a business now, right? She's not a she's not a business woman. She's a business woman. You know how Jay Z flipped that. Line, right? I'm not a businessman. I'm a businessman. Right. So and so um so she's a whole enterprise now, right? And um with scores of endorsements, um you know under her, making her the highest paid um paid woman in sports, mm-hmm. and one of the most highest paid people in in the world, frankly. Uh, how do you balance that with your responsibility towards being a spokesperson and and a brand, and also saying that I don't want to involve people in my in my space because it mentally is frustrating. Do you think that's fair for her? I, I, I think it's fair, but I think there are also going to be consequences to that, right? I mean, I think, uh, and as you're talking, I'm thinking about you know, me following her on social media that, you know, she's letting us into different parts of her life that, you know, we otherwise wouldn't be privy to. Uh, but like you said, she's a business. I mean, she has contractual obligations um, to, to be accessible to a certain degree. However, like Nate said, she's not a machine. <laughs> she's a young lady who has, um, you know, emotions and uh, goes through those publicly and she should be able to, to you know, say when enough is enough. Mm. What do you think, Nate? Yeah, man. I mean, you know, she is going to have, she is going to have contractual obligations. Um, it's just a part of the business. Um, and as, as we all know, you know, a lot of times these athletes, uh, sometimes they actually make more money in endorsements than they do with their actual, you know, uh, contracts for, you know, these sports teams and things that they do have. So, um, you know, and it also gives them the benefit, an opportunity to be able to make money even after they played the game um, over a period of time or whatever. Um, so, you know, you're going to have to be the face of the brand, you know, um, at some point, And they un- and they let you know those things um, kind of up front, you know, so you kind of can't get out of you can't get out of them, you know, but. I think like, you know, like what I was saying before, you know, like they're they're not machines, man. And after after losses, especially like you, you just don't want to you don't want to have somebody ask you the same question five times, because as a human being, <laughs> if, if you were on the street and somebody was asking you the same question five times at some point in time, like you're going to you're going to get upset. and You're going to be like, well, didn't you am I not making myself clear? Did I not like break this down to you? Like in a toddler sense or like what, (laughs) like, am I crazy here? You know? So I think that, you know, we, we definitely, like I said before, you know, we have to be able to give them the grace to be able to, you know, have their, um, have their space when it is that they need it. And, you know, maybe, um, maybe right after the game or right after, you know, a tennis match or whatever, isn't the, um, the time to talk to the person who lost. Um, Maybe it might be, you know, the following day, but at the same time, I do understand, you know, you got, sports outlets like sports center and you know um uh cbs sports and all these other different you know folks where you know they they want to be able to have the um the quote of the day you know i'm saying that the person said from the press conference to be able to spark a conversation and do things so i get that too as well so but i think it just needs to be somewhat of a little bit of balance we just got to look at them more as you know human beings and get inside with them so um the tour uh is we just said that they um the French Open, rather. Well, I guess the, the tour, they said that they will get, be penalizing her $15,000 a day. Um, the WTA, WT, 
PA basically saying that she they're going to find her fifteen thousand dollars every time she decides not to engage with the media, and she may actually default in the tournament, right? So now, you know, there's a pressure from the French Open saying that this is part of your, or just not even the French Open in particular, just in the WTA saying that this is part of your obligation as an athlete that you have to make yourself available to the press, you know, and so that is the conversation of is there a mandatory obligation by making your, by being a tour player part of the obligation is that you have to speak to the press you know whether you like it or not and if not then you do not need to be on the tour is, yeah. that, is that a fair thing for the for the tour to say Nate Bruce I, uh, yeah, I was going to say I, I, I don't think it's fair I mean I think for her and as I'm doing some, some research on it I think she this time she had won in, in straight sets and just wanted to remain focused. I mean, for, for athletes that perform at that level, she wants to minimize distractions. Uh, I, I totally get that. And I think the product is, um, you know, how she plays. But, of course, WTA and the, uh, you see, whether it's Wimbledon or the French Open, they want to make sure that their sponsors have access to whatever that product is. And I, I think $15,000 a day is, is a bit steep to not, you know, want to speak that's to the, the press, it's excessive. Uh, but, and, and I think she, she tweeted or responded that, you know, she'll pay however much, you know, she needs to pay. Um, and, you know, ask that the money be donated, I believe, to uh, support a cause related to mental health. But um, I, I think it's a, a bit excessive. But so there's, there's that thing of there is no, um, there's no price for mental health. Peace. There's no, right. no, there's no um, price for peace, right? And I think our generation and younger has accepted the concept that there is, we rather have our peace and there's no price tag on that. You know what I mean? And I think that's harder for the old guard to consider that, no, when you're getting paid a certain amount of money, you need to accept the responsibilities of that. And people say, well, no, I can still get paid because I'm an exceptional, I'm exceptional at what I do. I just don't need to accept the things that go along with it just because that's the way tradition or society has told me. Right. right? Yeah. And I think that's kind of been the, I think the, um, the line of demarcation between current society and now. So I'm going to, uh, you know, this is a written quote from uh, Billy Jean King, who's a famous uh, tennis player and um, hall of fame tennis player, Billy Jean King. She says, so, Quote, I fully admire and respect what Naomi is doing with her platform. So I'm a little torn as I try to learn from both sides of the situation. While it is important that everyone has the right to speak their truth, I have always believed that as professional athletes, we have a responsibility to make ourselves available to the media. In our day, without the press, nobody would have known who we are or what we thought. There's no question that helped build and grow a sport to what it is today. I acknowledge things are very different now with social media and everyone having an immediate ability to speak their truth. The media still play an, an, impromptu, an important role in telling our story. There is no question that the media needs to respect certain boundaries. But at the end of the day, it is important we respect each other and who we are in this situation. And we are in this together. So, um, I think there's a, she, there's a balance, right? Because she understands that there's a understanding that the newer generation has a different platform. If there's comments, statements she wants to make or a person wants to make, 
they have access to that by via as Bruce mentioned their social media. But there's also a statement of, hey, you know, we this is what we had to do in order to grow our sport, and this is part of it. But as we know, growth doesn't just happen because people are listening to, you know, uh, sound drops or media drops based on a press conference, right? And so the accessibility and making and growing the sport is not done through press conference. So I don't know if I agree entirely with, I understand what she's saying or her statement saying, but I don't know if that's even a necessary thing anymore. We don't consume athletes information the same way we did in 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, and early 2000s. Not at all. Yeah. I, I totally, I totally agree with you because I mean, let's be honest, you know, after a game, whether, you know, the game ends at, you know, nine o'clock or even five o'clock, let's be honest, who's actually sitting down and watching the, the post game interview. Not really many of us. Most of us catch that stuff on SportsCenter or, you know, a local TV outlet or whatever it can be when we're watching the evening news. Um, so I, I, I think that I, I agree with some of the things that she did say, but I, I think that she's starting to understand a little bit that, you know, we've the, the we've evolved in how we communicate and how we get our messages out to people. Um, you know, over the course of time, the things that they did in 1960s, they did in 1960s because like that's all they had access to. Now our platforms are different, especially with social media. You know, there's different ways you can get your message out um, to be able to do that. And I think it's, uh, you know, up to WTA to be able to kind of work together, you know, with the athletes, because to my knowledge, they don't have like a um, like a players union like the NFL does or anything like that to kind of speak on their behalf. Yeah. Um, so I think it's. It would it will it will behoove them to work together with the athletes and come up with some kind of a you know compromise that would be um, best and work for all parties. So, you know, I I, I actually um, would like happen to think that she's probably not the only one who thinks this way. She just recognizes that she's one of the top you know women in, in that sport. I, I I believe she's number one, right? She's ranked number one in the sport. She's number two actually right now. Okay, who's who's ranked who's ranked number one? I'm not sure. I'll, I'll find that out for you right now. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, being one of the top people in the world, most recognized people in the world, and understanding that she has a huge platform, um, it prob- she's speaking probably for people that have don't have the same voice as probably who's, like, ranked number 300 on the tour. So, But I'm going to take the other side of it, right? So what about newspapers who have to sell and publications and, like, hey, a writers and people on the, you know, people who are on the tour as far as covering the sport – like, this is how I feed my family. And so if you're not making yourself available, it's like, hey, I get it, but this is how I put food on my table. It's kind of like it takes – it's the balancing act of, like, is that fair for them as well? But, Kamara, she gave an on-court interview. Mm. Okay. So she right after the game, <laughs> right after the match, she gave an on-court interview, but she just said, hey, afterwards she wanted to focus – uh, you know, on, on the next match and, and just refuse to make herself available after that interview. Right. But let's just, let's just call it what it is. She gave an on the court interview. And again, I'm not saying that she's wrong. I'm just looking at the other side of it. Right. That was, yes, that's what one person, right. Mm-hmm. But there are other people, right. Who probably who are on the tour who don't have that access to give her an interview. All right, and so this may be the one of the few times they'd be like, "Hey, when she's, yes, she's in front of a gaggle of of reporters, 
that they can ask her a question that may be relevant to their readers or their subscribers. Right. I mean, so, I mean, there is, there's that as well, because then somebody might say like, why am I even going to send out somebody? Um, Imagine if LeBron James said, I'm not going to give any interviews after the final, after a playoff game. It, that would be a huge controversy, right? Would you think? Would. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, that's just, I mean, but I, I'm not saying she doesn't have a right, but I'm just thinking about the scores of people who have to, like, feed their families through these publications and then not being have, able to give a quote, uh, get a quote from one of the most recognizable athletes in the world. It could, I mean, it could have an uh, an effect on clicks because we live by click-based society people are not subscribing based on actual papers or publications but you know what's the likelihood of me clicking on your article when you're quoting the number 15th best player in the world as opposed to number two best player in the world right yeah Yeah. i mean oh i did i did that was an open-ended question (laughs) (laughs) um so so Let's transition in, into her impact on the culture. Um, I know last year during the height of George Floyd, um, she was a big and still is a big advocate uh, for uh, Black Lives Matter and just um, just speaking out on social justice. And I find it I found it interesting because you know I'm going to talk about this in a few minutes here, but. Um, she has a clear path of trying to disassociate herself from past athletes who did not want to speak on on top button topics, right? Especially when they have a global brand. Yeah. Right. And she's implanted herself in these conversations and effectively. And I think it's, it's ingratiated her with uh, a generation of people who not only follow the sport, but those who don't even follow, but they follow her. Right, and I think that's fascinating. What do you, what do you think about that? I think it's pretty awesome, man, that she is able to you know speak her truth and um, you know not feel like that um, her money is going to get messed up because um, you know she um, you know says how she feels. Um, and I think that you know over the course of time we've just kind of evolved into this culture where um, you know people are you know getting more comfortable with speaking out you know, on different issues, um, whether it's, you know, uh, child human trafficking or um, Black Lives Matter, whatever the case, you know, um, you're starting to see athletes um, more as human beings and less as just an entertainer. And I think that the old guard, you know, um, most folks who are, you know, pretty much, you know, 50 and behind or whatever, um, they're used to just seeing athletes as entertainers, um, not thinking that they have brains that they feel emotions and they feel things. Um, it's just their responsibility to get out there to the football field or the basketball court or the tennis court and just do their job. And they don't want to hear them say anything else about, you know, nothing else that's going on in society. But, you know, we're just like we're affected by certain things. You know, are we all were affected by George Floyd, you know, passing away. Um, she was too, you know, and same thing with Breonna Taylor or whatever. So, you know, I applaud her uh, being able to use her platform um, and, and, and speak up, you know, about it and, and, and say something. And I think that honestly, like, you know, it, it, it takes the big fish. It takes people like her, people like LeBron James, um, to get up and actually say something. 
Um, and then other people, it gives them the others, other athletes, the courage to be able to kind of follow suit behind them. Um, because at the end of the day, like you got to think about it like this. You don't want to do anything to mess up the money. <laughs> Period point blank. Because this is how you feed your family. That you got people behind you, um, you know, cousins, sisters, brothers that you're helping trying to get through school, whatever the case may be, you know. So, you know, um, I think, you know, when you are able to kind of put yourself in a situation where as long as, you know, you're saying whatever you can and it's not messing up the money, but you're also able to speak your truth. I mean, I think that's a beautiful thing. Right. What do you think, Bruce? I, I was going to say, and I, as you're talking, Nate, I'm thinking, would it be different if it wasn't a individual sport and she had, you know, team ownership uh, or other stakeholders mm. uh, to answer to versus, you know, it's it's just Osaka, right? It's just Naomi. And it's, of course, she has, you know, the endorsements and, you know, Nike and things like that behind her. Um, but the, the question would be, to me is would it be different if she was, you know, uh, on a team versus individual? Um, I think it's it's amazing how, again, like you said, Kamara, I think it's it's generational, um, and this particular generation only knows how to speak their truth, right? They know. You know, I, I admire that about this generation. Um, but like I said, I just wonder if. Uh, she has more freedom because it is an individual sport. You know, so I'm going to, first of all, we I, I have two thoughts on this. Well, really one thought, but it it's going to portion off. Um, I think, number one, her addressing uh, social issues, I think that humanizes her. You know, and because we talk about the balancing of humanization of the athlete and their profile. And when she decides to involve herself in the social conversation um there's a relatability there they're like oh okay she's one of us she gets it right and i think that's important and i i i think when when somebody puts themselves out there and it humanizes we humanize them we have to accept them in their whole and we can't just say well we like this part of the human and we don't like that part so now that she's in last summer she humanized herself by socially engaging in that active social conversation. Now she's humanizing herself by saying, hey, I don't want to be a part of this portion because of mental health, right? So I think those are two things in our this generation that I think is very key. Number one, she's socially active. Number two, now she's talking about mental health. Those are not things that are, is, were considered, they were considered like taboo 20 years ago, right? Mm-hmm. Social, you know, being a social advocate and mental health and, for her to lean into those two things um, in the middle of the tour, not off season, but an active tour season. I think that's just a fascinating uh, thought. You know, you can do that tomorrow when you beat the goat. <laughs> yeah. Let's not forget. <laughs> she, yeah. she has, she has beaten the goat. So she feels now that uh, she can do whatever she wants. And that's okay. She's empowered. But I would, and this is where I actually want to parse off the conversation because for me personally, um, just being vulnerable here, like, you know, Nate, you talked about, you know, you can't like, you know, screw up the money. Um, shit. I remember probably eight years ago, seven, seven years ago. I don't know. Um, I started becoming more vocal, active on social media, just you know, speaking my truth a little bit. And I remember Ivory was like, uh, you want to start doing that? You might start messing the money because clients are not going to may not want to deal with you. Somebody who's so vocal about everything. But what I found myself doing, and Bruce, you can relate to this, 
hopefully maybe you can i don't know uh sometimes there's this pressure of fitting within the box because we don't want to offend people especially within our within our legal field right and right. we don't want to say the wrong thing or we don't want to be deemed the wrong thing and we can we can turn off clients or judges or or colleagues and they may develop this this idea of you that is not um you know very much appealing and so we kind of we say things we we may talk amongst ourselves but we don't say things in the public and i found that not being my truth and so i, I ultimately i said you know what i'm just going to start being more a little bit more honest about what i see about things and weirdly enough Yes, in the beginning it was a little bit interesting financially, but what I have found is that because of my authenticity, that clients actually are more. They I have I've had greater success with clients because they feel like they know me, you know, in a weird way because of social media. And I, I so it's like you you do have that fear of I don't want to be authentic because I don't want to mess up the money, but also what I have found is when you're authentic with people the money's going to be there. And I think with her being the highest paid woman athlete, despite the fact of her being so vocal, I think it, it proves that. And I, and I, I'm not comparing myself to Naomi at, at, at any portion, you know, but I'm just saying that even on my minuscule atom scale of my life, I have seen where authenticity means more than being playing it safe. Right. So, I mean, that's my little, Spiel on that. Uh, what do you think about her impact on just the culture, uh, just as a black woman, a biracial black woman, both Asian and black, and how she's accept like accepted that? I, I think it's interesting because, like you said, not only uh, is she uh, biracial, but she's what's who you say her boyfriend is? Is he a, a hip hop artist? Yeah. Oh, he, sounds so, he sounds so old. So, Bruce. Do you don't, yeah. you don't you don't know who Corday is? Of course. YMB Corday. Well, sorry, Corday. No, I was gonna say YMB Corday. I think he I think he dropped the YB uh, YBN. But I, I think now, not only I think it, it, sports and and music and the culture is always uh, intersected, but much more now uh, with uh, you know all the social justice issues, and I think she has just placed herself squarely. Uh, at that intersection, uh, and she is a, doing a great job at it. I mean, I think it is her humility and vulnerability that you see um, during her matches, after her matches, uh, even, you know, when she uh, beat Serena, uh, <laughs> just, uh, just paying homage to, to Serena uh, and almost like it, it ripped her apart to have to beat someone that she uh, looked up to. But it, I think that vulnerability um, and authenticity, like you said, Kamara is going to take her far, and, and she's going to change the culture, not just be a part of it. Yeah, yeah. What do you think, Nate? I think uh, she's actually doing an amazing job being an ambassador for the sport, um, and we need more uh, young athletes like her um, to come behind her and just you know keep this thing going. You know, it um, you know started with um, you know uh, Althea Gibson and um, you know some other uh, women that, you know, we, we, we had there, uh, but there wasn't like another like super, super major star until like, you know, Venus and Serena, you know, appeared right. on the scene, you know what I'm saying? And then they kind of took over and did their thing. Um, and then now, you know, it's nice to be able to know that, you know, for the next generation now, now we got Naomi, um, you know, for 
you know, our daughters to be able to look up to, to say, Hey, you know, um, you don't have to, you know, go play basketball. You know what I'm saying? You know, let's, let's try tennis. Look at, look at Naomi Osaka. Like, look what she's doing on the court. Um, and you know, on and off the court, right? On on and off the court, on and off the court, you know what I'm saying? So I think she's doing a fantastic job just being able to be an ambassador for the sport, um, and just showing how, um, uh, you know, tennis, you know, is it, it just making it more more inclusive, you know what I'm saying? Which we, you know, all we know that, you know, uh, you know, uh, tennis and golf, you know, um, back in the day, you know, those really weren't inclusive sports, you know, folks didn't really, you know, um, you know, want us in those spaces. So it's nice to be able to, um, you know, list and have out um, athletes that we can actually name now, you know, in those spaces. We used to be like, okay, well, who plays golf? Um, right. Charlie Sifford. <laughs> you would have like one guy like every 10 years or something like that you know what i'm saying but now it's like okay yeah we can start naming like three four five you know what i'm saying folks in those spaces and that's and that's awesome so um we're gonna get into golf here because i would i but just before we move on um i want to say this to your point nate and bruce i think it's great that she's not only ambassador for the sport but she's an ambassador ambassador for the culture and I think that's something that I am so proud of because, again, our children, and although they may be younger, um, they'll be able to look and grow up in the Naomi Osaka era of seeing that how she's going to be a continued ambassador. And it's something that's going to have an indelible pack, impact on athletes that come up after her for generations. And to have that as a basis for your introduction to the world of sports and imagery and iconography of your athlete, I think that's fascinating, you know, because our parents, they had Muhammad Ali, right? Mm-hmm. And then we had like Michael Jordan and then Tiger Woods. And so, which are, it was interesting because they were so impactful the number one athletes in the world but they were so markedly different than let's say muhammad ali in the way they involved themselves in social conversation um their popularity rose not because of their social stances because of but rather because of concentrated uh, marketing efforts um by their you know companies uh, namely uh, nike so with that being said I'm going to transition this conversation into what the original podcast was supposed to be. (laughs) (laughs) What was that? What was that? (laughs) You know, um, and that's what we call a segue, ladies and gentlemen. And so uh, with that being said, with this segue, I am going to play um, a clip. And I'm going to play a number of clips, but this was going to be the first one. So if this is of uh, Mr. Earl Woods. Please forgive me, but sometimes I get very emotional when I talk about my son. My heart fills with so much joy when I realize that this young man is going to help so many 
people. He will transcend this game and bring to the world a humanitarianism which has never been known before. The world will be a better place to live in by virtue of his existence and his presence. This is my treasure. Please accept it and use it wisely. First of all, um, I just want to say that if my parents put all that <laughs> pressure on me to change, I'm going to change humanity. Change the world. <laughs> that is, is some. Listen, I, that's gonna that can send anybody into therapy. <laughs> you know, that'd be like, listen, wait, what? I'm gonna change the world. I'm not Jesus, but he was, he was, you know, pushed as the Messiah, a Masonic yeah. figure of sorts, and in a way, he was right. So, um, we're gonna play a number of clips. But what you, what were your first reactions just listening to that? Well, I'll start with you, Bruce. Uh, just how powerful it was, <laughs> you know. Um, you know, truer words have been said, and I think, you know, from what I know now in hindsight, and how Tiger has has literally uh, changed the game of golf and introduced it to a sect of population who otherwise would not have been exposed to it. Uh, it like I said, it, it was so prophetic. So, and I think the, the the soundtrack behind it helped a little bit too, right? Right. Um, and I'll get to you in a moment, Nate. But I just want to say, so Bruce, well, a lot of people don't realize about Bruce and why I actually want to bring him on, not because he's my friend, and not only because he's a brilliant mind, but because also Bruce got a golf scholarship in college, and that's how he paid for them books. Am I right, Bruce? <laughs> well, it was actually an academic scholarship, but oh. I was able to play golf. <laughs> In college, <laughs> football and golf. Um, I think I played three years of golf uh, at St. Augustine's University up in Raleigh. Oh, okay. My bad. I just I just dumbed dumbed you down. <laughs> He's not your typical athlete, Kamara. Yeah, you're right. right. More, right. Than, more than an athlete. Shout out to LeBron James. <laughs> no, 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 no questions, please. No questions. No questions. Um, but your introduction to golf, like, when were you? I mean. Were you a big fan of it before Tiger Woods? I think Tiger Woods came on this in 1996. So we're... I I started playing golf in middle school uh, where uh, Mr. Dexter, uh, who was one of the uh, staples in Eatonville, God bless his, his uh, way he rests in peace, but he took a lot of us over to the what used to be the Rosemont Country Club um, on a monthly basis and just taught us the game of golf. Um, and I immediately just fell in love with it. Um, it is very expensive, so that is a barrier to entry. Um, but uh, when you go off and play uh, college golf, you get to play a lot of golf for free. So mm-hmm. <laughs> it, uh, that is how I got introduced to the game. Got you. Nate, what were your thoughts when you heard that clip? Man, my thoughts, my, my first initial thought was just love. 
like I felt the the love, the 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 compassion and just the pride that he he had for Tiger, you know. Um and I guess you can say that I mean, you know, everybody always you look at when you have a kid, you know, you look at your kid and you're just like, yeah, man, you know, that's that's me right there. You know, that's going to be, you know, in, in the future, you know, they are going to, you know, they're going to make a difference, you know. Um, but I think that, um, you know, for him to, you know, say that on that, you know, large of a scale that, if I'm not mistaken, I think that was uh, the collegiate uh, award for like the best golfer in the uh, country when uh, he was um, making that speech about Tiger. Um, but, you know, for him to be able to say that um, in front of everybody like that at that time, I think it was super special. Um, and it was also super special because at up, up until that point, you really didn't have anybody. There was a gap. You didn't have anybody who looked like Tiger um, who was in that space. So, you know, Earl wanted to basically put the world on notice and basically look like, hey, you know, look out world. But but did he really change humanity, though? Um, because like, I mean, he's, you know, society's going to be better for it. Now, those are heavy statements, especially what we know now about how he interviewed with social issues. Like it, or is that a fair statement? We'll walk into that, but I just want to ask your initial statement. Did he change humanity? I don't think he changed humanity. Um, but I mean, I, I think that he definitely gave, you know, people, um, a different lens to look through. Um, when they, you know, talked about a black athlete or a biracial athlete, you know, he gave people a different lens um, to look to look through. Because in that space, of course, you know, um, most of us um, know that golf is a it's a predominantly white male sport. That's just how it is, you know. Um, so, I mean, I wouldn't go as far as saying that he did change, you know, humanity, uh, but he definitely made an impact on how people view um black folks um in a different realm um and he definitely you know made himself just you know stand out out of, out, of, out of all the others you know what i'm saying and but he did it in you know his own way his own style um and it's you know interesting as you, you're probably going to you know dive into you know we're, we're going to eventually see you know how the machine tiger was created yeah uh what's, what's your thoughts brutes did you do you think he changed humanity Yes, I do. Um, and just from making golf cool, right? Making golf um, something that black folk wanted to play. Uh, but then again, I think breaking the barriers of uh, of just like Nate said, it is a predominantly white male sport. But now, you know, you don't think you see an alien when you see a black man or black woman out on the course based off of what Tiger has been able to do. Um, I think, yes, he changed humanity in that regard. Yeah. So we're talking right now about, and just tying in um, Naomi and Tiger, how they are successful in white spaces, right. And predominantly white spaces. And there's something to be said about their appeal, because I think for a lot of black Americans who are especially in operate in the professional world, we can understand that how to navigate and be successful in spaces that don't necessarily look like us and still try to ascend. Right. And I think that was, that was, especially with middle-class black America, I think that was one of the things we latched onto um, that we, you know, saw in him. He became an avatar for our professional and social 
um, advocacy in spaces that don't don't necessarily look like it. So would you disagree or agree on that? I agree. Yeah. What about you, Bruce? Yeah, I agree as well. Yeah. All right. So, um, Nate, you you talked about the marketing, and I'm actually going to play a clip here, and I wanted to get you guys' thoughts on that. So. Sports today, the inevitable, the most talented amateur player in the history of golf has decided to turn pro. Tiger Woods is quitting college to take his game and his considerable appeal on the professional tour and to accept a multi-million dollar endorsement from Nike. In one short week, Woods reinvented the business side of golf. He will rewrite the record books for sports marketing. When Tiger came to us at Nike, everyone at the campus is talking about who's the next Michael Jordan. That was always the Nike question. And then lo and behold, Tiger Woods comes along and he kind of was the next Michael Jordan. One of the first things we do with a Nike athlete is get them media trained. But when we told Earl about the media training program, he said, I've already trained him how to talk to the media. We don't need this. I think Earl was objecting because someone else besides him was going to talk to Tiger about how to be Tiger. Earl thought Tiger was his creation. So Earl was a little nervous that he's going to lose some control. I think Earl just didn't realize the magnitude that Nike advertising can bring. When you make a commercial, you want to find what makes that product unique. Golf was very lily white, and there was some discussion. I brought it up and said, do we want to play the race card? Nike's not stupid financially. Using Tiger to reach a wider range of golfer and expand the golf universe is a no-brainer. They said, fucking yeah, let's do this. So... There's a lot to mind from that statement. So, um, I'm going to start with you, Nate, since you mentioned the marketing push. What were your thoughts on that? Um, Nike's not stupid. <laughs> Nike knows what they're doing. And uh, I mean, clearly we can see that from the Jordan brand. Um, anytime you're able to uh, take one athlete and then branch them off um, to create just their own entity and their own brand by itself, um, you know, um, you, 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 you know what makes, you know, everything successful. Um, so, um, I do definitely think that Nike knew exactly, you know, what they were doing in that space. Um, and let's, let's be honest, you know, um, you know, companies are in the, in the business of, of making money. So, um, however, they're going to be able to, you know, appeal to, um, a certain demographic, you know, they, they have, of course they've done their research, they've done their studies and all that type of stuff, whatever, but. I think this was, you know, really truly new for Nike to be able to tap into this particular demographic for this sport. Um, and, you know, I think that they, they, they honestly, you know, really, really did, you know, a great job. And like Bruce was saying before, you know, Tiger, basically Tiger made golf cool, you know, not just the black folks, not just the white folks. Um, he made it cool to everybody. Um, you know, uh, I, I would say probably the two best things that happened to the golf were uh, during during the uh, 90s were uh, Happy Gilmore and Tiger Woods. <laughs> because you got a totally different element, you know what I'm saying, of folks to come out 
you know, to the golf course. Um, and that was all due to Nike's Nike's marketing, you know, um, and, and, and how um, they put him out there um, and said that, you know, hey, look, world, you know, this this guy is. He, he, he's the he's the next the next hottest thing and you need to get behind it. Oh, and if you're and if you're not behind it, he's just going to he's going to steamroll past you and he's, he's still going to be here. and He's going to be making stuff happen. What about you, Bruce? Yeah, I mean, I think Nike hit the jackpot with Tiger. I mean, I, I think they just they, they absolutely knocked it out of the park. Um, they had a, a, a great run with it. Um, and even if you weren't playing golf, you still had Tiger Wood apparel. Right, like you still, uh, it, like you said, it just it transcended the golf course, and I I think you know when they say who's going to be the next Michael Jordan, they they just absolutely hit the jackpot with it. And and correct me if I'm wrong, Nate. I think did Nike get rid of their golf department? Yes. So Nike yeah. did away um, in the um, mid uh, 2000s. Uh, 2010s, um, they did away with um, their uh, actual like golf um, equipment part. They um, they got rid of that and they just kept the the apparel brand the apparel. Uh, of of it. Um, but even still, you know, um, the Nike golf apparel is synonymous with Tiger Woods. Right. <laughs> okay. So, and I wonder. I'm like, I wonder if Tiger had anything to do with that, right? Well, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm, you know, I'm Next. not. I'm not a big golf, and you know, you can. Time on this, Nate, but the clubs were okay, but they weren't top. They weren't like the best clubs. People weren't. They were all right. You yeah. know what I'm saying? I mean, Nike ended up putting themselves in a space where, you know, you had major competitors like TaylorMade, Callaway, Titleist, yeah. um, who had been, you know, in the in the golf club uh, manufacturing business for years. You know what I'm saying? Um, and essentially it was a money grab. Um, and I think that they, um, you know, Tiger is, you know, the golden goose. And they basically saw uh, they saw a an opportunity to be able to um, just make even more money. You know what I'm saying? And I mean, why not? You know, if you you go ahead and you um you, you have this guy, you know, who's um you you signed to this large endorsement contract. You know, okay, we're gonna get him into the apparel brand. That's um that's a given. But what else can we dive him into? Oh shoot, let's go ahead and let's 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 just start making golf clubs, like. <laughs> So I think that it was, um, you know, everything that they did, you know, was complete strategy, even with them getting rid of the golf um, uh, golf club, you know, uh, sector of, of the business. That was strategy as well. You know what I'm saying? So, um, yeah. So, all right. So here's the thing, though, just going back into marketing here. I find it fascinating that they said, who's going to be the next Michael Jordan? And we talked about it or about how Michael Jordan was this media behemoth in the 90s. Right. Um, and he was the largest sports star in the world and one of the most recognizable faces on the planet, period. Right? Um, I would say, like, probably in the 90s, he was probably one of the five most recognizable people on the planet. Right? Next to right. Michael yeah. Jackson, you know, um, him, Michael Jordan, mm, maybe maybe Clinton. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I mean, you know, um, Mike Tyson, I don't know, but I mean, this is one of the top five most recognizable people on the planet. But the fascinating thing about Michael Jordan is that even with this accessibility we have, to, we had to him in the nineties, one of Jordan's greatest appeals was that 
he was able to transcend race because he didn't really invoke. Um, he obviously he was a black man, right? But there was nothing in particular. Uh, it sounds really weird. Black about Jordan's appeal. You know what I'm saying? Like like the way he was marketed. He wasn't marketed right. as a black athlete. He was marketed as an athlete. Yeah, he was, my, he was marketed as an athlete. And I think that he honestly just bought his own swagger right. to Nike. And over the years, um, that created a culture. So I agree with you there. Right. Uh, I want to I want to be like Mike when you say yeah. that it didn't you could be a black man white man black little black girl white girl, yeah Asian man everywhere everybody wants to be like Mike right sometimes I dream that he is me, he is me. <laughs> like Mike you know how that's a, how amazing marketing is the hell that I the fact you said be like Mike and then that song immediately popped in my brain. Yeah. Yep. That is incredible marketing. I haven't sung that song in like a decade, <laughs> and that Im- I immediately went into the cadence, right? Um, one but of the most iconic commercials ever. One of the most iconic, you know, uh, commercials, definitely. Do you think it was concentrated because it, the person who was um, who made the comment that Nike wanted to lean into the? I hate the term race card. I, I hate that because like race is not a card that you can pull out of a wallet. I don't swear. <laughs> but that just shows you how they felt race is really transactional. Yeah. You know, in marketing. Because they said, do we want to lean into it? And the guy said, fuck yeah. You know, yeah. and so that just shows you what they how they viewed race at that time as a transactional statement of we can swipe this card to make him look different, but we don't want him to, you know, have an, a lasting impact on just the racial question. We want him to be distinct. But we don't want him to be, you know, uh, um, to the point where he's so special that he's not relatable. To, yeah. Um, and I, I think they found a f- perfect avatar in Tiger because, quite frankly, Tiger, we'll get into this, how he wasn't raised, despite what Earl said, he yeah. wasn't raised to be this social ambassador, almost. Nah, right. I didn't get that from the documentary at all. Yeah. Um, what did you get from the documentary, Nate? Uh, I mean, honestly, I mean, he he was basically just creating a golf machine. That's basically what I got from the documentary, man. He wanted to, you know, create a, a young man who would be able to um, excel at golf um, at the highest level. Um, and he basically wanted to remove all distractions that would not that would prevent him from 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 not doing that. You know, I mean. They did, you know, have a few moments in there where, you know, um, you did see the love and the compassion. And, you know, I mean, he, you know, he treated him, you know, you know, like a son. But, you know, you could definitely see like how like, you know, um, he he was just he was just preparing him, just constantly preparing him, preparing him, preparing him. And, you know, as a parent, um, you know, we prepare our children, you know, I'm saying for life and, you know, different circumstances that they're going to, uh, you know, come along and um, obstacles they're going to have to overcome. Uh, but, you know, I think, you know, definitely from a golf perspective, he was like preparing him for for the tour <laughs> at like five years old. He's preparing him for the tour, you know. So just interesting to see, you know, that kind of emphasis, um, you know, put on a child, you know, at such a young age during that time. Yeah, I thought it was interesting 
uh, Kamara when he mentioned or when they mentioned that, you know, Earl didn't want to let go. Earl, like, no. Yeah. He, I, I, I taught Tiger everything he needs to know. There's no need for us to, to go from this. <laughs> right. Right. You know, um, it's weird because we talked about in the first segment of this podcast the humanity of Naomi. And it's almost like Earl raised him to not be human. <laughs> he raised him to be devoid of humanity, right? Right. He devo- he raised him as this as a machine, as you said it, Nate. And when you raise somebody as a machine, they're not developed to take on not only real real world emotions, right? And yeah. I saw that as his career phrased on like he was it started coming apart coming seemed started seemingly coming apart and he was kind of seemed like he was socially awkward right but mm-hmm. also um it's made now looking back you see why he never engaged in things that were um socially important as far as you know social engagement regarding issues yeah. because that wasn't his focus and he wasn't designed or he designed he wasn't raised in that in that function, I know in yeah. my household, I'm raising my kids to be very conscious, conscientious, right? And so to be conscious of other people, um, and, and worlds and things. And so when they get older, um, they will be have a natural instinct to be uh, empathetic to the world around them, right? But that wasn't world. That wasn't how Earl Woods raised his child. He wasn't raising him to be empathetic about the world around him. He was raising him to be a killer on the golf course. Yeah. And, you know, I just think that's a fascinating uh, comparing contrast between two athletes, Naomi and Tiger. What do you think, Bruce? A, a killer. I was going to say a killer on the golf course, but also one of the things I picked up on during Earl's speech was uh, the emphasis on uh, philanthropy. Right. I think he, in terms of wanting think his son's going to change the world, he raised Tiger to be a philanthropic giant. And as we know, Tiger and his foundation spends a you know crap ton of money uh, on philanthropic uh, uh, efforts, and even though he may not be as engaged uh, in you know whatever the the social movement is uh, of the day, he still puts you know the, the checkbook to work when it's necessary. Yeah, no, most definitely one thousand one thousand percent. I thought white America's consumption of Tiger was interesting. And by the way, for those who we're talking about the documentary on HBO, if you haven't checked it out, it's a two part documentary. Um, I thought it was it was a really well done uh, just peel back of the way Tiger was raised. And so if you haven't had a chance, please check that out on HBO Max. Uh, So uh, I thought white white America's consumption of Tiger was particularly fascinating because, uh, you know, they talk about how. When he was successful, it was almost like CC, and I'll, I'll play a clip from that actually, rather than just describe it. So. I'm talking about white folks, black folks, Asian folks, you name it. Everybody wanted him to be theirs. Hey, Tiger! The reaction to him said something about this country, often accused still of a pervasive racism. America was thrilled by and for Tiger Woods, glad that such a young man could reach such heights, gladder still, if anything, that a black man could. It was like white America almost patting itself on the back, like, look, this is the promise that America makes. 
that anyone can use the tools that this country offers and make it to the highest levels, regardless of race, color, creed. Go get him, Tiger! We like to believe we're this place without racism, but that's a great American myth. He has an amazing opportunity. So, you know what I thought was really interesting about that statement was that I felt like Tiger was almost used and willingly in a lot of spaces to justify white supremacy because it was almost like, well, how can there be racism? How can there be bigotry when he's successful? And look at and 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 look and look how he's ascended in society. Right. And not and because he's actually spoken out against their four, but because what often happens is um, and it's, we saw this with Obama as well. When one person is uber successful and they do this, do this Oprah, how can there be racism when someone's so successful? How can be, there be systemic racism when this person's making so much money in the world? Clearly, our society is moving in a trajectory of positivity. So you focus on race when race is not an issue. And I, I felt like that was, you know, what ended up, and you guys could disagree with me, obviously, but um, I felt like that was a, um, where Tiger was used as an avatar for that line of thinking. Uh, I see Nate, you're, you're processing. What do you, th- what do you think about that? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that he definitely was used as the, oh, well, you know, we, America isn't racist. Look how far we've come story. Um, I think that, you know, was the, um, that was a lot of white people's like, I don't want to say champion or just whatever, you know what I'm saying? I, I, I just think that, you know, he, he was, he was pushed as that. Um, but I think also as well, you know, um, and I, I, I don't know if you have a clip of this, but um, the, the interesting to, thing to me was uh, when he went on Oprah Winfrey show, and he and he called himself Calibanasian. Yeah, I want to talk, we're talking about that. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, so the 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 whole piece of the guy talking about oh well, you know, basically everybody wanted a part of him. Um, you know, technically, you know, I mean, he did have a part of kind of of kind of everybody. But um, I mean, let's be honest, let's be truthful here. You know, America. You know, when they looked at him, they saw him as they saw him as a black man. You know, black people saw him as black. <laughs> white people saw him as black. You know, they didn't look at him and say, "Oh, yeah, that's a he's he's Asian." You know what I'm saying? Even though he did have um a, a part of um uh Thai, I think his mother's uh, from Thailand. Um, you know, in him or whatever. You know, we we saw him. You know, a, 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 as a black man. But you know, I I'm not sure. You know, during his process of growing up, you know, how Earl you know communicated you know that specifically to him. Um, for him to, you know, kind of, you know, be able to, you know, kind of make that statement. And I think it just got back to, honestly, you know, Tiger seemed like the type of person who just, he wanted to make, he wanted to please everybody, honestly. You know what I'm saying? No matter whether you're white, black, Asian, Hispanic, he wanted to just, whatever space he was in, yes, he wanted to, you know, come down to your level and he wanted to humanize himself and he wanted to be a part, you know what I'm saying, uh, of you. And I think that that was, kind of a little bit of part of that him, you know, calling himself, you know, cabination and not boxing himself into just, you know, one box as a, as a person, you know, you can, you can call me black or whatever, but I'm calling myself cabination because 
I'm I'm for everybody, you know. <laughs> what do you think, Bruce? Yeah, I was thinking about you know, yes, he was used as an avatar, but you got to think about it, man. Um, golf, like we said, is still seen as a white man sport. It is a country club sport, mm-hmm. right? So although they were, you know, using him as, look, if Tiger can do it, so can you, there were still barriers, right? There's still some clubs that we can't go to, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so although they tried to use him as that, they weren't very successful at doing so. Yeah, you know, I I've, I, thought about this as you guys were talking. I almost feel like, and I don't know if it's true or not, I felt like you could tell Tiger didn't really have that conversation in his house. Race wasn't a conversation, real conversation. Because there was an uncomfortableness with him the way he spoke about race. And he didn't seem like it was a natural conversation with him. It, you know, it was just something, it was understood, but it wasn't something like where his father sat him down and talked to him about race. Because I think it was a clip, and I, I, didn't put, I didn't chop it up. But even when he, could, when he was, like, teenager was talking to him, he said, the blacks. And I'm like, why would you call them? <laughs> Why would you call black people the bl- I'm going to be uh, something for the blacks. So I'm like, What? Like, you know, who, who refers to their race as the blacks? You know, so um, there's almost this sense of um, separation from him from that conversation. And then when he was thrust into it, now he had to walk into the thing. Yes, I'm a black man, uh, obviously, because Nike, um, you know, started introduce him to the world of the whole hello world conversa- um, commercial and. Mm-hmm. You know things of that nature, but I don't think he ever was truly comfortable with that. You know, um, that's just my opinion. And actually, uh, with that, well, I mean, first of all, what do you think about that? Do you think you have a statement or Bruce, Nate? Anybody? Yeah, I don't. I don't think that you know. Um, well, I'm sorry. I, I do think that he. There was probably a little part of him that wasn't comfortable. You know, with having those conversations, and um, I and I don't know to what the level of the extent was that. You know, Earl did talk to him just about, you know, being black, period. You know, I mean, um, uh, you know, Earl was a I think he was, um, if I'm not mistaken, um, he fought in Vietnam. But like he was like pretty much like every day, like on like a suicide mission, like he would like plant bombs and yeah. do like a lot of, you know, you know, no crazy stuff. You know what I'm saying? So um, I'm not really sure exactly, you know, how much, you know, he, he really dove into, you know, just his experience, you know, as, you know, being a black man, you know, in, in the army and just being a black man in America, you know, that gate that would give tiger um, kind of the heads up to be able to kind of look out for, you know, certain things because of, you know, his race or that he is, he, he's different than other people, the folks that he's facing, you know, which are his white counterparts, mostly on the golf course. Um, you know, well, I'm sorry, Bruce, you have, you have thoughts? No, no, no. So, you know, I, I just thought about it. I just thought about, um, I can't speak for y'all, but maybe I can. I don't know. Uh, me raising my children, right? And my children are raised in a predominantly white environment. And one of the things um, I think is fascinating is seeing how my kids have a hard time with rhythm. <laughs> they have a hard time with rhythm. Like, it is, it is maddening, bro. Like, I'm like, shit, like. Like you play certain songs and they have no rhythm. Well, no, one of my daughters—I'm not going to call them out—but one of my daughters does not have any rhythm. The other one, I think we have some 
We have uh, there's hope. We, we there's hope there. But I say all that to say because we spend a lot of our time raising them in spaces that don't literally represent their culture, and their influences permeate through their personalities. And so that is, I know there's something I'm going to be cognizant of, of when they get older, of trying to talk to them about culture and their race and understanding their, there's some semblance of that, there's importance of that. I say all that to say because I get the feeling when you look at home videos of Tiger that he was raised in a very same middle class atmosphere that didn't necessarily look like him. He was often in a space where he was the only speck of color, you know, um, you know, I, and I say that because my kids are in that regard. Uh, what do you What do you think about that? Because I know you guys live in nice neighborhoods and <laughs> anything like that. So, what do you, have you ever thought about that? Like raising your children in white spaces? I have, and I think um, things are different now. I think Kamara with with what kids are exposed to, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I think. Uh, especially with, you know, smartphones and literally they can Google uh, at, you know, the drop of a dime, uh, whatever they, they they are looking at. But I think times have sort of changed in the sense that we, our kids, although they, their class may look, um, you know, totally white, they're exposed to much more uh, than even we were growing up. What are your thoughts, Nate? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think, to be honest with you, um, I kind of take a little bit just from my experience. Um, you know, I, growing up, I grew up in the suburbs, you know, of Miami. And, you know, my parents did a good job of educating me at home um, and also putting me in spaces where um, I was around other folks who looked like look like me, you know, um, grownups and, you know, kids. Um, so I think it's, um, you know, the, the parent, you know, has to, you know, do their due diligence and, and make sure they are educating their kids, you know, as, as they are at home. And, you know, if, if, I mean, culture is just, everybody has their own unique culture. And, you know, like I grew up with my dad playing hot one Oh five inside of his little donk car when he picked me up from school. And, you know, that, that's how i that's how I learned about Earth, Wind, and Fire. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. Um, it was a part of him, so it ended up, you know, becoming, you know, uh, a coming a part of me. Um, and it, it's funny because I'm like the blackest experience that I had for, for most of my life. Every space that I've had, I, I've been in, it's pretty much been a mixed environment. Um, my blackest experience was Gosh. going to my middle school and going to uh, Florida A&M. Those are my two blackest experiences. I was around just everybody who looked like me, talked like me, whatever. Case be. But it was funny because in middle school, um, I was in the band, and I remember like you know some of the kids like they they knew like the area that I stayed in or whatever, and they were like, oh yeah, well you know um, you don't you don't you don't talk like you know how how, how we do, or I, I would be you know made fun of a little bit you know because I talked proper or whatever case should be. But when we got in like the band space, like, you know, we would, you know, be playing instruments and doing things. And I don't know, rhythm has always just came kind of natural to me. I don't know what it is. Like, I just, you can, there's like home videos of me being five years old and I'm just walking around, I'm dancing, doing stuff, whatever. That's just me, you know? Um, So it was just funny because like, I I was like drum major in my my middle school band 
and it would it would be kind of astonishing to some of the kids. They would be like, like how does how's he how's he grow up in the suburbs, but he can he can do the peanut butter and jelly better than I can. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, you know, just because you grow up in a, a, a all black neighborhood, don't mean that you're gonna be given the 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 the, the rhythm card. Mm. You know what I'm saying? That's just not gonna be. That might not be your ministry. You right, know what right. I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> and just because you grow up in the suburbs, you know what I'm saying? You might have you know the best rhythm out of everybody. You know what I'm saying? But I think you know a lot of times you know um, you know folks like try to you know prejudge people by based on you know where they they came they come from and don't try to get to know the person you know as a person but at the end of the day like i said before i think the whole culture piece just comes back to the home and you have to be able to educate your kids um inside of your house and get them to be able to understand what your culture looks like and have them be proud of being who they are right what do you think bruce are you any thoughts on that no not after no any more than i've said before I know you, uh, you, your father, with, with the, um, prior to him getting into politics, he was a DJ? So my dad did a lot. <laughs> he actually, by trade, he was a sound engineer. So he worked for Channel 9 um, before he uh, retired. Uh, but both of my parents independently were in uh, bands, music groups. So my dad had a band uh, called Fantaz. He played. Uh, the bass and my mom had a singing group called True Essence, uh, which is probably where I got all my rhythm from. So hopefully my daughters get half of that, right? So then <laughs> we, we won't have those issues. I was going to say, Kamara, I think that's uh, hereditary, man. You'll have to check yourself, man, see what you what your rhythm looks like. <laughs> Come on, I saw the, I saw the, I saw that video, man. You know what I'm saying? If you had the bar thing, you were you were you were trying to do your thing. Hey, listen, man. Listen, I was, <laughs> it, it, it it must have skipped a generation because my wife has rhythm, and you know I I have rhythm. I was in dance contests, man. So I ain't listen. We're gonna work on it. My baby, my baby, gonna get that ministry. We, we talk about ministry. We're gonna pray on that one. So, um, so. Uh, I wanted to bring up because you mentioned this, Nate, um, his statement. So I'm going to play this clip and, you know, we can rock with it, see how y'all think. An opportunity now beyond the golf course. He does have a great opportunity. He's got a great burden also. I mean, I think the expectations, while they were enormous for him going into this thing, they're double that now. The social burden will be considerable. This is a guy who, who a lot will be expected of. He'll be asked to be a spokesman. And maybe that's unfair for somebody who's 21. A lot is asked of athletes of color that is not asked of other athletes. This is a racial society. It's not just how you play basketball or how you play baseball, how you play tennis, how you play golf. People thought that Tiger was going to introduce this groundswell. Tiger Woods, oh, the golf man? I think he's kind of cool. I think it's great. I think it's history. He's going to be a role model for anybody that wants to do good in life. As a, an African-American, I know how we are. We take great pride in our young people who accomplish great things, and we claimed Tiger Woods. He was ours.
received all kinds of adulation. You also get hate mail. I hear you insist upon reading it. Why? Yep. Well, it, um, it reminds me of what I have to try and do. Uh, as people know, golf has been a kind of elitist sport, mm -hmm. and unfortunately, it's kind of wasn't until six years ago the Augusta National even allowed exactly people a, of color a black member. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's and you know clubs still practice that, and unfortunately, I've had to deal with that all growing up. I got kicked off of golf courses numerous times, uh, been called some pretty tough words to mm -hmm. my face, and it, it it's tough. Golf needed to be shaken up. What do you call yourself? Your father's half black, quarter Chinese, quarter American Indian, mother's half Thai, quarter Chinese, and quarter white. So, does it bother you to be called African American? Yeah, it does. Growing up, I came up with this name. I'm a Cobblin Asian. A Cobblin Asian. Ka, Caucasian, blue, black, Indian, Asian. Cobblin Asian. I remember when Tiger Woods was black. <laughs> the masses i'm flipping through the sports illustrated and i read tiger woods is a quarter black i'm like damn he's down to 25 percent now man <laughs> but you know as soon as he gets in trouble what will we read black golfer arrested people of color had so much invested in him i'd be lying if i said i wasn't disappointed you know, my grandkids are biracial. And uh, somebody asked me, they said, well, what do you tell them? And I tell them, um, they're black, they're African-American. And I said, why? And I said, because that's how America is going to look at them. And that's the reality of, of Tiger. To so there's a number of things in that clip. That was a long clip, but I didn't know when to cut it off um, because there was so much appeal for that little segment. Uh, let's first talk about the burden of black athletes that um, Brian Gumbel said, talked about, like how there is a difference in our expectations of them. Um, starting with you, Bruce, what do you think about that statement? I, I think it's true, right? But I think to some extent it's, it's not fair. Right. Because, um, you know, for an athlete to now be thrust uh, into the light of being, you know, even folks throw away, throw around the term, you know, role model, you know, are they, is it their job to be a, a role model? Um, and to me, you know, if they don't want to, they don't, <laughs> they don't have to. Um, so um, I think it's, it's unfair, but it's, it's the reality that, the black athlete has a, a higher burden uh, than their counterparts. But it's, it's, but it's still an expectation nonetheless, though, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So, Nate, um, I'm going to start this. I'm going to ask you the same question, but I'm going to give a little bit different context. Uh, you're a fan of a poverty franchise, uh, the uh, Cowboys. And so... <laughs> Thanks a lot, Tamara. And so, um, you're a quarterback, is uh, I think it, during the, the height of the George Floyd, I remember he said a statement that you know he he really wasn't a fan of the protest and he didn't believe in athletes using their voice in that particular platform, um, and he got quite a big quite a a bit of backlash. 
And so with you being a fan of that team and I'm assuming, you know, the quarterback uh, and in hearing that, that clip of black athletes being having the burden, um, maybe unnecessary burden. What are your thoughts on that? I was a little disappointed when he um, had made that comment. Um, But at the same time, we have to understand as well that um, that Prescott is also a mixed race individual too, as well. So, um, you know, or went to Mississippi state rather. Yeah. went to Mississippi state, Um, you know, so, you know, uh, probably a little bit of the same things that, you know, Tiger was feeling um, maybe he feels, you know, a little bit too as well, where it's more so a, um, he looks at the sport as, I'm going to get out here, I'm going to do my job and, you know, I'm going to get, you know, get to this money, you know, um, or maybe he just, you know, feels like, you know, he's not in a position financially. Cause you remember too, um, that Prescott, if I'm not mistaken, was drafted in like the sixth round or something like that from Mississippi state. Um, it wasn't planned for him to start. He was essentially going to be Tony Romo's backup quarterback. And then Romo got hurt. Prescott stepped in. He made the most of his opportunity and, you know, he finally was able to get a, um, a nice, sizable contract um, for the next few years. You know, so um, maybe, you know, the mindset, you know, at that particular point in time was, you know, I'm, you know, I- I'm going to be very careful as to what I say because uh, I ain't secured a bag yet. And I still got people who are dependent on me for a variety of different things. Um, and, you know, it also, too, might go back to his experiences, too, just like Tiger. You know what I'm saying? Maybe he didn't fully grow up, um, you know, with um, being invoked into the whole, you know, black culture and um, that being, like, impressed upon him, like, on a, on a daily basis, you know. Um, I, I do think that the burden for, you know, black athletes is um, – it, it, it is, is, is tougher. Um, you know, by, we, we have to be leaps and bounds better than our white counterparts. Um, you know, you, you, and, and you, and you see that, you see that in golf all the time, you know, you, I, you, there's countless people on the, on the PGA tour that have never won a single tournament yeah. ever, <laughs> yeah. but they've done well enough just to, you know, be able to keep their car. But you know, the few, you know, black players that you have on there, you know, um, sometimes they do try to make knowledge and make light of, oh, well, you know, he hasn't won yet or whatever the case may be. Um, so I feel like, you know, just, you know, stemming back, you know, from, um, you know, from slavery and whatever, like we've always had that chip on our shoulder where like, you know what, like just good enough is not going to do it. We have to go over and beyond and be exceptional just to be meet meet other races halfway. Yeah. Why well, did, um, when is Dak going to stop playing Pop Warner though and move like to the big leagues? <laughs> um, I mean, well, you know, he, he had a, a serious ankle injury. So, you know, uh, this is going to be the year, baby. This is going to be the year. You know what I'm saying? That's a weapon. You know? Hey, listen, if the New York Knicks can make the playoffs, I have faith in the Cowboys. Listen, the, are the Knicks in the playoffs? Because the Knicks are in the playoffs. No, 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 get, you know, no, no, no. You, you don't understand. I say, are they? I don't think the Knicks realize they're in the playoffs. <laughs> <laughs> I think the Knicks are like, wait, we're in the playoffs. This is not the regular season. <laughs> I think everybody else got the memo except the Knicks. Um, but yeah, I, I I think it's it's weird because it's. We, when we see it, especially a popularized black athlete, we tend to put more on them. That's what we talked about, Naomi. Right? There's 
there's yep. this pressure of having to be part of the culture and yet you're exceptional because you're operating at such a high level in, in a predominantly white space. Um, so what do you think about when that statement that we claimed him, like black people claimed him? I thought it's you, I, that you had said that because like, as you were like kind of playing that clip or whatever, um, I immediately started thinking about Dave Chappelle. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> out there like uh, the black delegation uh, selects Tiger Woods and <laughs> crazy. <laughs> this is a dream come true. <laughs> You know, um, I thought about that, you know, and I don't know. It's it's interesting because we automatically, like, we claimed him, but you're right. He was, you know, a product of biracial Asian culture. You know what I mean? And so, in fact, hold on. Let me see if I can play the clip because it's funny. I didn't even, I should have had that ready, but, you know. Believe it or not, the blacks have actually won the first pick. Wow, that's the first lottery a black person's won in a long time, Billy. Yes, and probably still complain. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Sounds like a black guy to me. Yes, please. Looking blacker already. Uh, I'd like to say, uh, tremendous opportunity for me. Finally be part of a race, have a home. Been so confused by capitalization and so many things. So long fried rice, hello fried chicken. How about you, <laughs> uh, I always wanted to say this. For shizzle. <laughs> Yeah, so I thought that was <laughs> funny, um, but yeah, I think it's it's weird because we we automatically claimed him, but for good reason, right? Because the first thing you see is his skin tone. He is identifiably black, and that's what Brian Gumble was saying. Like they're not going to look at him. Yes, he might have other things that he's has in his obviously his uh, heritage, but the first thing you're going to see is that he's a black man. And I think it was a natural inclination for black people to obviously adopt him as one of our own. And so, you know, when, you know, transitioning, when he started to say that, uh, you know, I'm more complete uh, capital Asian, I think there was a broken hardness in that. Right. But is it, is it fair though, that, you know, you, we were forcing him to, to choose a part of his, his culture. And make it one something greater than make one part of his culture greater than the other. That was that a fair thing? No, it's not. That's that man's truth. <laughs> it's true, right? Right. He, he he wasn't making it up. He was just speaking facts. Mm-hmm. What do you yeah, think? No, about- it's not 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 fair at all. I mean, you know, you you um, everybody is born how they're born. You don't you, you don't choose who your mother and your father is. You know, you're created out of love. Um, but you know, I do think that as um, you know, time evolves and um, those you do see, you know, biracial kids, they gravitate to, you know, a certain race. And it just it just happens. You know what I'm saying? Look at your Drakes and, you know, folks of the world. You know, if you just whoever you feel accepted amongst mm. as you're growing up, that's who you're going to gravitate 
more towards, you know what I'm saying? So, you know, I'm not sure specifically um, in Tiger's instance, you know, how many black friends he had, you know, on a regular basis, you know, because all those little clips like through high school and whatnot that I was seeing, you know, he was surrounded by nothing but white folks, you know, which there ain't nothing wrong with that. But, you know, if that's all you're kind of surrounded by and you're not really surrounded by a lot of people who look like you, talk like you, walk like you, you know, you're you're not really going to be able to fully identify, you know, with, you know, your, your race, you know, versus like somebody like Drake, you know, <laughs> he was in Memphis. Drake, you know what I'm Drake, Drake, Drake. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you did it. You know, he had a, he has a Jewish mom. You know, and everything. But you know, um, he he gravitated towards you know the black race. You know, what I'm saying just it, it happens. It happens. Yeah. What are your thoughts, Bruce? I don't have anything to add on that one. What, what was that? I said I don't have anything to add in addition to that. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, it, you're. What I would think I'll, I'll say about it is, um, it's. The, the conversation now we talk about Asian hate, you know what I mean, and stop Asian hate. And there was a conversation in the midst of that of you know um, black people relations and Asian people relations um, within uh, American society, and uh, you know it's been it, the racial relations intra within that has improved uh, greatly uh, over the last I'd say. 20 so years and I did a podcast on this um, but there's still obviously um, obviously we, there's always a lot more we can do but I, I would say within the last especially the last five years you started seeing um, black people really try to step up for our Asian brothers and sisters and then the same thing in that regard too um, one thing I would have said I would have liked for Tiger to have incorporated is to maybe merging more of that and if he was going to be an ambassador to be an ambassador for that of black and Asian, you know, relations and seeing that he grew up in a household of a, of a black man and of an Asian woman and to be a primary advocate of that. And I, you know, obviously that was a missed boat on his part, but I mean, you're right. You can't tell a child to um, pick one race over the other, but I think there's something to be said about, you said it perfectly, Nate. Um, his identification probably was fermented from, his surroundings and what he grew up with and you know again you know nature over nurture i just say so listen um gentlemen you know i don't want to belabor the point i you guys gave me so much of your time and i really do appreciate it um i'm going to ask you on this my final question of what do you see as tiger woods impact on black culture starting with you bruce again like i said Tigers, in the terms of, of, of golf, he's the GOAT. Um, and I think the way that he uh, was able to, uh, again, bring, uh, expo- to expose Black folk to uh, the game of golf, just, it's second to none. I mean, I think at this point, again, we started talking about Naomi, right? So now we're looking at not just golf, but we're looking at tennis and we're looking at, uh, you know, NASCAR. Um, and I think all of that uh, really started because of, of Tiger and his impact into a space that was otherwise dominated um, by white men. And I think now um, so much of the black culture 
uh, like I said, the intersection of sports and hip hop and, um, you know, again, social justice starts by um, the fact that, again, Tiger uh, was able to um, just kind of breach what would have otherwise been um, off limits to black folk. Yeah. What about you, Nate? Um, I think uh, my, my sentiments are the same as Bruce. You know, um, he did, I think, an amazing job just being able to push the culture forward and making golf an inclusive sport. Um, because, you know, the thing is, at the end of the day, if you talk to most folks, you know, back in the day and stuff, you know, they will always say, you know, well, I don't feel comfortable going to a golf course because I I don't I don't feel like I'm on those people's level <laughs> who are at that golf course. You know, they they people automatically assume, oh, they they have more money than me or they're as soon as I walk there, they're going to look down on me. So, you know, I think he did a great job just making the game more accessible to people who are minorities you know what i'm saying at the end of the day and um you know by him giving us you know that gift and doing that um now going forward you have more minorities who are you know gonna be in interested you know in the game of golf because it's not seen as a just a boring sport like i said tiger woods happy gilmore two best things that probably could have ever happened to golf. <laughs> you have a different element you look at the spectators now like you know, back in the 1970s, 60s or whatever, you know, they used to do the little golf claps, you know, a little quiet golf claps. Where, you know, now you have a herd of thousands and thousands of people that flock to golf courses for different tournaments. And like there's nothing like watching a golf tournament on a Sunday evening when they're going into like the last two holes. Like there's nothing like it, especially when you talk about your major championships like your Masters, U.S. Open um, those kind of things, you know, when you see, you know, those, those images and you see all the different types of people that are out there, you know, young folks, middle-aged folks, you know, children, it's amazing to be able to just kind of watch that. And then, especially like in, 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 in the, since we're talking about Tiger, you know, watching him with the, you know, last master championship, he walked, he won, watching him walk up and watch just these thousands of people walk behind him. It is nothing like it. It's kind of it is kind of godlike. It's kind of cool. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, I'm not saying they're following him, you know, as a messiah or anything like that, but it's like, you know, all these thousands of people have come out to watch this one man be great. And that's like just so that's just so special to me. Yeah. I mean, now his father probably thinks of it as a Masonic figure. But yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um you know, I'll, I'll say this, man. I, I, his impact on black culture is undeniable. And, you know, he is, for lack of a better term, he is the father of that, in that space, or he's, he's a Mount Rushmore of um, black athletes in white spaces being successful. Obviously, we have to give shout-outs to Arthur Ashe and, you know, um, Thea Gibson and all the you know the people that came before him in, in that regard. Um you know, so I would say that on one end, it's like a job well done, right? Because without Tiger, a lot of the things you mentioned would not have been, you both have mentioned, would not have uh, come to fruition. But at the same time, I think there was a missed opportunity 
in that regard. And maybe it's not fair, but there was a lot of missed opportunities he could have done to really bring the conversation forward. But that doesn't take away from his indelible legacy uh, as far as just black culture is concerned. Um, I th- and I think, honestly, maybe it's the way that, you know, for better or for worse, that we see someone like Naomi, how she has br- brilliantly um, merged both of her um, her racial um, heritage and ident- identity. She said, hey, I'm both, you know, Japanese and um, Haitian. You know, I'm I'm black and Asian. So there's not one that's greater than the other. I'm I'm equal parts, right? And so it's because of that, um, it's embracing of that. And she, maybe the examples set by Tiger, for better or for worse, has created a generation of athletes that I, I I appreciate what he's done and what he's what he has contributed. But I want to go in a different direction. The same way LeBron has taken a decidedly different approach to his um, his appeal than Michael Jordan when he first came out, right? Michael Jordan was a very different type of athlete and national appeal. And LeBron said, I'm going to go a different way. I'm going to have the, the tattoos and I'm going to embrace, you know, um, a social cultural aspect of my black culture and be more outspoken than let's say someone like Michael. Right. And um, I think that's something to be said where there's going to be a lot of athletes who are going to take from LeBron and be like, I'm for better or for worse, I'm going to do what he did or I'm going to do less or greater. I don't, you know, we'll see. I guess the die is not cast on what, his ultimate legacy is going to be in that regard. But um, so I would say that and, you know, shout out to those who uh, oh, go, go ahead, Nate, you want to say? No, no, I just got one more thing to add, you know, um, just kind of been thinking about, you know, everything we've kind of been talking about, you know, um, maybe, you know, for Tiger, it might be a thing of where he might take the Jordan approach at this point, you know, in his life and, you know, start to, have more of an impact, you know, on our communities and my other minority communities um, later in his years, you know, um, you know, clearly, you know, we what Jordan didn't speak up, you know, during his time while he was playing, but since he's played, mm-hmm. you know, he has started to have more of an impact in, you know, different communities and using, um, you know, his platform and the brand of Nike to be able to um, invoke a change and basically put the money, you know, where their mouth is. So, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised, you know, if, um, you know, Tiger um, starts to probably do that um, be just because the way society is changing. I mean, he already has the money. He has the bread. Um, he has the sponsorships, all these things, you know, um, you know, maybe he might start to, um, you know, put a little bit more um, emphasis um, into, you know, the black community and other minority groups um, as he, you know, starts to get older. Right. Like I asked done. Facts, you know. Um, shout out to Tiger Woods, and you know. Tiger Woods, y'all. Hey, shout out to Tiger Woods, man. Tiger Woods, y'all. Tiger Woods, y'all. Hey, um, with that being said, I want to thank you know both my guests, Bruce and Nate, for jumping on this pod. I hope you guys enjoyed it. If you guys enjoyed it, please share the podcast. Um, hope you guys had an incredible Memorial Day uh, weekend. And with that being said, we gonna ride out. Unstoppable. Yeah, 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 may know.
I got women in the herbs, women in the hood. Yeah, my wifey mad, cause she know I'm no good. Man, I'm just a dog, I'd be faithful if I could. But I'm Tiger Woods, yeah, I'm Tiger Woods. Go get him Tiger, yeah. get him Tiger. That's me. Go get him, get him, get him, get him Tiger. That's me. Get him Tiger.